All right. Good morning again, uh, friends. Today, we are going to be jumping back into our series through the book of Genesis. And if you've been with us for the past few months, then you know about five weeks ago, we ended our, or we paused our series in the book of Genesis in Genesis chapter 5. So we're done with that. And now we're going to be picking back up starting in the beginning of Genesis chapter 6. But since it's been a few weeks, it may be helpful for me to just kind of recap what happened in the book of Genesis so far, or else we're going to have a hard time understanding what the passage today is about. Okay, so let me go through that. What has happened in the book of Genesis so far? We've seen, as many of you know, that in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, God begun the story by creating mankind, Adam and Eve, to commune with mankind, to have a relationship with mankind, and in those first two chapters, everything was perfect. But the only reason why everything was perfect was because at the time, God was God and man was man. You know, my, my household is not perfect by any means, but it's somewhat in order. Why? Because Tati and I are the parents, and Elaine and Liam are the children, not the other way around, at least most of the time. The world in Genesis 1 and 2 was perfect. Why? Because God was God. He was treated as creator, infinite, authoritative, and mankind lived as mere creatures with their finitude and limitations. But the story got messed up in Genesis chapter 3. Why? Because Adam and Eve, they weren't happy with this arrangement. They didn't like the creaturely limitations that they had. They wanted to have authority to do something that only the creator had the right to do, which is what? To decide between right and wrong, to have authority to decide what is evil and good for themselves. That's why they ate the fruit from a tree that's appropriately called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the one God told them not to eat. What they wanted to do is they wanted to bust out through their creaturely limitations. And ever since, the story's been messed up. Like infants trying to run the household, things break. And that's what's been happening ever since. It won't work. Now, let's fast forward a few thousand years later. Now we're at our passage today in Genesis chapter 6. And guess what we see happening? Adam and Eve's descendants still stuck in the struggle of their forefathers, which is what? In Genesis chapter 6, what we'll see is mankind is still trying to bust out of their creaturely limitations and challenge God, but they just did it differently. And what I want to propose to us today is that, look, fast forward a thousand years from then until now, modern-day Jakarta, we still struggle with the same sins. We still today want to keep trying to bust out our crucial limitations. And what our passage today is essentially calling us to do, it's it's calling us to break that pattern. Break that pattern. It's calling us to do something that no mere man has been able to do ever since the garden, which is what? To be happy with our limitations. Be happy with our crucial limitations. And if we don't learn how to do that, We'll never be happy because guess what? We'll always have limitations. That's the call here, okay? So how do we do that? Well, let's, let's dive into God's word taken from Genesis chapter 6, verse 1 to 2. This is the word of God. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, 
the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His day shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the Son of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I've made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, there are three things I want to point out from the passage. First, the finitude we refuse to accept. Second, the heart condition it reveals. And third, the man that saved the story. All right, the finitude we refuse to accept, the heart condition it reveals, and the man that saved the story. Let's, let's move on to our first point, the finitude that we all refuse to accept. Okay, so as you probably figured out, as we read the passage, the first four verses of Genesis chapter 6 is probably one of the most unclear passages in, in the Bible. There's, there's just not many cross-references to check with. Like, who were these sons of God? you know, who had sexual relationship with, with the woman here? And who are these Nephilim? There's a lot of uncertainty. So this is how I'm going to go about it. Let's just start with the things we do know about first, okay? What do we know about? Well, here's what we do know. We know that whatever sin mankind committed here in Genesis chapter 6, it's very much connected to the sin that Adam and Eve committed in the garden. How do we know that? Look at verse 2. Look at the three phrases there you see in in verse 2. It says that the sons of God here saw that the daughters of men were attractive, were literally good, okay? So they saw that the daughters of men were good, and then they took them. They saw they were good, and they took them. Does that sound familiar to you? It's a pattern of what happened with Eve before the fruit in the garden. What did she do? She saw that the fruit was good, for food, and then she took it, okay? So the point here is that whatever sin mankind committed in Genesis 6 has the same essence with Adam and Eve's sin in Genesis 3, that somehow this is still some kind of form of rebellion against our creaturely limitations. The difference is the type of creaturely limitation that they were rebelling against, okay? If Adam and Eve wanted God's attribute to have authority over right and wrong, they want to be the final say about what's evil and what's good. The people here in Genesis 6 wanted God's attribute to live forever and never die. That's most likely what's going on here. Why do I say that's most likely what's going on here? First, because of the nature of the punishment. Look at verse 2. God punished them by shortening their life in one way or another. He says that my spirit shall not abide in man forever. His day shall be 120 years, which was, is long for us now, but back then that's, that's a shortening of it, right? A punishment appropriate to the crime. But we also know this because there was actually a well-known sex cult back then in ancient Mesopotamia that would make this exact claim. They would tell women that if they had sex with them, they'd live forever, 
And since the book of Genesis is known to be written in such a way that speaks against false religions at the time, it's a polemic against false religions at the time, it's likely that this was the error that this particular passage was speaking against here. Now, now stick with me for a bit, okay? I, I just need to explain it or else we'll understand the passage. With that in context, this is where the sons of God, or the sons of gods, however you want to interp- uh, uh, interpret this passage, come in. The sons of God, or the sons of gods here, they were the ones who were making this claim that if you have sex with me, they said, you'd live forever. And there are two main thoughts about who these sons of gods were, okay? One, it's kind of weird, but many do claim that these are actually spiritual beings, like fallen angels who somehow took on flesh. Why they say that? Because angels in the Bible, whether fallen or not, are at times referred to sons of God, so, so this view would claim that these spirits took on flesh in form of bigger statured men and promised women that if they had sex with them, they'd live forever. And the Nephilim were kind of the result of this intercourse. But the second theory that many people also hold to is that these sons of gods were just powerful, bigger statured men who claimed that they were the descendants of gods. You see what I'm saying? So, you know, and that's what would happen a lot back then. Kings or powerful men would say that they were the son of the sun god or the moon god or something. And these sons of God, you know, told these women that if they had sex with them, they'll live forever. And they're the people who kind of are in this cult. And the Nephilim here were merely the children of these bigger statured men. Now, I have to explain that because either way you go, you know, however you want to interpret it, whether the sons of God were, were fallen angels or bigger statured men, it doesn't really change the main point of, of the passage because the essence of mankind's sin here is still the same. That like Adam and Eve, we're not happy with the limitations we have, specifically here with the limitation of death that God's placed upon us. The people here wanted to live forever, so they broke through their creaturely limit or attempted to by committing an act that's against God's will. Okay, that's the point. Mankind wanted to break through our creaturely limits by committing an act that's against God's will. And this sin is what I want to propose to us today is still rampant. It still clouds all of our lives. You and I still struggle with this thousands of years later here in modern-day Jakarta. Now, we're probably, hopefully, not doing it by joining a sex cult, but, but we still struggle with it nonetheless, do we not? with accepting our limitations. And I hear, you know, us saying right now, but Tez, that goes against every intuition I have. Aren't we supposed to break through our limitations? Isn't that a good thing? Aren't we supposed to overcome our limits and bust through our shackles instead of submit to them? Well, yes, but not all of them. (laughs) What do I mean? This may help. Let's break down our limitations to three different types, okay? First, self-imposed. Second, others-imposed. Third, God-imposed. Self-imposed, others-imposed, God-imposed. And this isn't exact science, okay? This is just me trying to make the point clearer, okay? So, what are self-imposed limitations? Self-imposed limitations are limitations that we've placed upon ourselves and And this one, you are absolutely right. Bust through them. Overcome them. You know, be gone with those shackles. You know, these might be old hurts, habits, and hang-ups that we need to figure out how to overcome. Laziness, lack of discipline, 
anger issues, commitment issues. You know, these type of limitations, go for it. Bust through them, overcome them. The second type of limitation is others imposed. What are others imposed limitations? Other imposed limitations are limitations that the world's placed on us. Now, these ones I want to propose that we've got to navigate more carefully through. You know, don't just mindlessly bust through them like self-imposed limitations. Give it a think first. Is it really as much their fault as I'm making it to be? Or is there a percentage of it that's mine, maybe? And if it is mostly their fault, how should I address it? You know, what kind of intensity should I bring into the conversation? All that kind of stuff, okay? Self-imposed, bust through them. Others imposed, navigate through them. But God imposed, God imposed. See, this one is what we're focusing on here. Our passage is saying, the God imposed ones, you gotta submit to. Okay? But how can I know that a limitation I have in my life currently is God imposed or not? Well, this might be a good rule of thumb from the passage. If we want something, whatever it is that you want right now in life, if we want something, but the only way to get it is by disobeying God's commands, like Adam and Eve did in Genesis 3 and like the people here did in Genesis 6, it might mean, and, and, and I mean, you've thought through all the scenarios, all the options, all the paths of getting it, but for whatever reason, in this season of your life, there's just no way for you to get that thing unless you break God's commands. If that's the case, that might mean that that is a God-imposed limitation that you currently have in your life and you're not meant to bust through it. Now, I want to emphasize the word might here, okay? Because I don't know if you're misinterpreting God's word or God's laws. You know, you could be thinking, well, God is sovereign over all things, so I don't need to apply for jobs. Okay, like that is not God-imposed limitations. That's on you, okay? That's laziness, insecurity, whatever. Bust through them, remember? But assuming that you have correctly interpreted God's commands and you've correctly interpreted the situation, and there's just no other way for you to get that thing unless you clearly break his commands in order to get it, our passage is saying, don't. Don't. Don't bust through it like you would a self-imposed limitation. Don't navigate through it like you would an other's impose limitation, submit. Submit to the fact that we are merely creatures. Now, let me ask how your heart feels right now hearing that. It pains mine. It really does. To hold back and not, not, not go for it, not bust through it, even though, you know, if we really wanted to, we could. It's unbearably painful to do that. Whatever it is that comes to your mind right now, you want. Why? Why is it so hard to not just, to just accept this? Well, because the same sinful desire that plagued Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 and the same sinful desire that plagued mankind here in Genesis 6 is still plaguing our hearts here today. We're not happy with our creaturely limitations. 
And this heart disposition we have, it, it kindles God's full-on wrath today as much as it did back then. Let's go to our next point. The heart condition that this, this reveals. Look at how God, look at how this rebellion made, made God feel. Look at verse 6. He felt regret. Now, now, this is more than just like, oh, man, I should have never created humans. This is not that kind of disappointment. The Hebrew word regret here was actually the same Hebrew word used to describe the emotion that Dina's brothers felt when they heard that their sister, sister was sexually abused in Genesis 34. This word regret here is also the same Hebrew word used to describe the emotions of wives who were just unjustly abandoned by their husbands in Isaiah chapter 54. This wasn't just a, oh man. This was indignant, vengeful wrath. But it's like, why? Why, why does it anger God so much? Okay, you know, they committed adultery, which is bad, but is that really what, what kindled this, this anger? And yes and no, there's a deeper reason here. Look at verse five. What really angered God? Verse five said, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's what angered God. It was the intentions of the thoughts of our hearts behind the external act. What does that mean? See, whenever the Bible talks about the heart, it's not just talking about our feelings. Okay, let's read it again. Go to verse six again. It doesn't say, uh, or sorry, verse five. It doesn't say, that the feelings of man's heart was evil continually. Does it? What does it say? The thoughts of man's heart was evil continually. Wait, hold on. Biblically speaking, the heart can think? Yes. Because the heart in the Bible isn't just the engine room for our emotions. The heart in the Bible is the engine room for our whole person. It dictates our thoughts and our actions and our emotions and our words even. From out of the heart comes words, right? As someone once said, and we've said this over and over again, I think it's worth repeating here, whatever the heart most wants, the mind finds reasonable, the will finds doable, and the emotions find desirable. And you could extend that, you know, the mouth finds speakable, the eyes find beautiful. However, it all originates from this concept in the Bible that's called the heart the heart is our deepest, most unadulterated, um, I guess you can say, desires. What upset God here wasn't just the pragmatic consequences of the adultery itself. It was the state, the thoughts, the disposition of man's heart that then resulted in this act. Because what our heart is thinking when we try to break through our God-imposed limitations are these thoughts. We're thinking this to God. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's an uncaring ruler. He's forgotten about me. He's an unreasonable tyrant. He's incompetent at his job. He's a bad narrator for the story. And I'd be better off in my life if I made the calls. That's what, that's what our hearts think, and that's what God hears. Our heart scream out every time we deny our God-imposed limitations. Even if all we do was steal 10 thou from someone, our heart's still screaming those same messages to him. 
And that's what God kept hearing in Genesis chapter 6. Everybody's heart shouting out over and over again, continuously, verse 5 says, without end. Until one point, God said, you know what? Fine. I'm done. (laughs) I'm done. I will blot out man who I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, he said in verse 7. Notice, by the way, the Garden of Eden language here. Man, animals, every creeping thing, birds of the heavens. That's how creation was first described in Genesis chapter 1. God here is saying, look, if every character in the story is going to complain about the fact that they're not the author, which is, by the way, that started the whole mess anyways in Genesis 3. If every character in the story wants to play God and keeps messing the story up and keep hurting each other, let's just end it. Let's end it. You're not happy. I'm not happy. Let's be done with it. And really, this, this should have been it, guys. This should have been the end of the story. It should have been done. Until, in verse 8, a man appeared in the story who turned the delete button into a reset button. And his name was Noah. Let's go on to our last point. The man that saved the story. Now, Noah here, you'll see later again next week, unlike other people who lived at the time, he was described as righteous. You'll see that in verse 9 and 10 next week. He was blameless, it says. Okay, how does his righteousness and, and blamelessness express itself? Well, it expresses himself, itself in his ability to trust God and not bust through the limitations God's imposed upon him. At the time, that's what faith is, right? And you know the story. God essentially limited Noah's life choices in a way, didn't he? God came and told him, look, your life now will be about making a boat. That's what it's going to be about. That's it. Whatever you got going on before this, let it go. This is your life now. You're going to spend your days chopping down wood and collecting animals, and you're going to put them in an ark for a flood that you don't see any signs of it happening yet. (laughs) And he did it. Not a drop of rain has fallen. But when God told him to give his whole life to this task, he did it. There's a lot of unknowns, I'm sure, as to whether or not submitting to God here would amount to anything in his life. See, and that's what makes it so hard, doesn't it? You know, the question about whether or not my submission to this God-imposed limit in my life, I could go for it, but I'm not gonna. The question looms large. If I don't, is this obedience gonna amount to anything? Will it move my story forward? Because right now, it sure feels like it's holding it back. But but here's what's amazing. Friends, it was actually through Noah's submission that not only the story moved forward, it was through Noah's submission that we even have a story at all. Noah's submission to God's will didn't shackle the story's progress. It saved it. It allowed the story to continue to eventually reach a climactic beauty Why? All because Noah, here it is, all because Noah was more worried about submitting to God's will than he was about pragmatic results. My goodness, 
if we can just drill that truth to our hearts, the world would look different. Noah was more interested in submitting to God's will than he was in pragmatic results. Dream with me a bit, would you? How would the world be different, you think? Picture a world where everyone defines progress as submission to the God-imposed limits in their life rather than in the accumulation of earthly good. Idealistic, maybe, but that's why I said dream. How would the world be different? If everyone was more concerned about being human, human, and actually observing their creaturely limits than they are about playing God, how would your marriage be different? How would your marriage be different if you and your spouse were more concerned about being human and observing your limits rather than playing God? How would your childhood have been different if your parents were more concerned about being human and observing their limits rather than playing God? How would my children be different? You know, if I'm more concerned about being human rather than playing God, I can turn the knife on me too. How would your church be different if the elders and the deacons and the leaders in it were more concerned about being human and observing their limits rather than playing God? How would this city be different? Dream with me. How would the city be different if it was filled with content creatures rather than contenders of God? You know why a world like that seems so idealistic and out of reach? Because deep inside, we know the problem is not going away anytime soon. It's too hard to uproot because it's a hard issue, right, that we just talked about. It's not just behavioral. And what we need, because it's a hard issue, what we need is something more than just Noah's example here. What we need is a voice that remedies the thoughts of our heart, something that'll soothe the whispers that say he doesn't know what he's doing. He's forgotten about me. He's an unreasonable tyrant. He's making all these rules because he just wants to be mean. He's incompetent at his job. He's a bad narrator for the story. What we need is something that will speak back to those thoughts. And the question is, what will? What will? What will temper down these primordial thoughts and whispers? Not just the example of Noah, friends. That's not strong enough. What will speak back is the point of Noah. Okay? What is the point of Noah? Or rather, who is the point of Noah? It's Jesus. Let me read you, uh, well, we read it earlier in our Assurance of Pardon. First Peter chapter 3 says what Noah is all about or who Noah is all about. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not the baptism itself, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through who? Jesus Christ. What's the point of Noah's story? The point of Noah's story that through one man's obedience, 
many are delivered. A foreshadowing to the main part of the story. Do you see it? Friends, Noah climbed into an ark to save a few. Jesus climbed onto a cross to save many. And look, Jesus could have disobeyed the Father. He could have bust out the situation he was in. Maybe uh, in his sovereignty, he put in our call to worship there, Matthew 26. What happened there? He told people, submit. Submit to God's will. He told his disciples that. Even when Peter wanted to push back against God's will, he said, put that sword back into its sheath. Submit. This is the Father's will. Trust him. It'll work out. Don't try to bust out of it. Look, here's, here's the gospel. On the cross, God placed self-imposed limitations upon himself and drowned in the flood of his own wrath that should have drowned us who mess everything up because we daily want to bust out of ours. That's the gospel. Now, if you're a Christian here today, meaning you believe in that gospel, you believe that this biblical storyline is actually the narrative of the universe. If that's you, then friends, my encouragement for you is to live it out. Live it out. I don't know what you got going on in your life. I don't know what God-imposed limitations you might have. If it truly is a God-imposed limitation and you encounter it and your heart begins to think, he doesn't know what he's doing. He's forgotten about me. He's an unreasonable tyrant. He's incompetent for the job. He's holding me back. He's a bad narrator of the story. If your, heart's, if your heart is whispering that, look upon Jesus, the greater Noah, and remember how God pushed the story forward through his submission to his imposed will and limits. The story moved forward by submission to the will, not by breaking through it. And let that truth remind your heart that submission to him is not a chain. It is not. It is a progression in the storyline, although it sure doesn't feel like it right now. But if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're still figuring out what Christianity is all about, you're trying to figure out who this Jesus guy is, what this whole thing's about, then, then here's the essence of what Genesis chapter 6 is, is, trying to, is asking you to consider today. That the only way, and it means the only way, you can get good again with God, it's not by your own obedience. The only way you can get good again with God is by through one man's obedience upon whom all is saved. And if you're not ready to accept that now, I hope you at least consider it. Let's pray. Father, we are not happy with our crucial limitations. We want to bust through whatever it is we need to bust through in order to get whatever it is we want and ignore you as king. Remind your creatures, Father, that we are not the creator. Free us 
from the entangling of the sin that has continued ever since the garden and make the people here in this church and other children of yours in other churches truly creatures who are content with being creatures. Hear now, Father, our response to this truth and to this um, cry. And let the Spirit humble us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.